before I preach to you. And there's an awful lot of stuff to preach to myself here, so I've been marinating in this in the morning, and that's uh, I found this took much longer to work through myself, so I apologize for not being with you this morning. But if you don't attend the prayer meeting, I encourage you to do so. It was a, it was a very wonderful and refreshing time. And I also would particularly appreciate your prayers for me. I know this is hard to listen to, uh, to have your heart searched, but believe me, it's hard to deliver it as well. Uh, it's, it's much easier to deal with something that tickles people's ears, but that's not what I'm called to do. Um, so that's the first thing. Second, I would say connected with that is this. Think about what we're doing in these mornings is what happens if you go to a doctor for heart surgery. I, if I had to see what it's like to do that, I don't think that would be very pleasant. Um, and, but I'm not giving you any anesthesia. Um, and you're awake during the surgery as you get cut open with the scalpel. You feel the muscles and the nerves being pulled back. You feel your organs being pricked, and you know something's going on inside. But if you've got cancer and that's not done, you're going to die. Okay, So that's why we're doing it like this. Now, I will tell you for now, tomorrow uh, there'll be the suturing and the closing up and putting some balm on the wounds, uh, but we've got to do the first part of the surgery first. And uh, now you've got cut open, and uh, now you're on the, on the table, and um, the doctor is really going to go to work with the scalpel. This is very, very probing material. Let's pray as we begin. O oh Lord, search our hearts and try us and see us if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. Remember that this stuff dashes your pride. It really does. But that's a great place to be because the Lord says He stands against the proud. And I do not personally want to have God stand against me. But He says He gives grace to the humble. So when the Lord humbles us, we know we're in a good position to receive grace. This drives us to the Lamb of God. Pages 16 and 17 in your notes. I hope you will take down some questions. Uh, we'll have a question and answer time this afternoon. One thing I did not get to do in the last hour, but I encourage you to, um, if you can get a copy of A.W. Tozer's article or tract, The Old Cross and the New, get it. In fact, for pastors here, or for any of you here, if you want a supply of those tracts, The Old Cross and the New, We'll get them for you through the Franklin Square Church and mail them to you. Um, that is an excellent statement, with the exception of one little point where Tozer's uh, weakness in theology comes out. It is an excellent statement of what I covered in the last hour about the meaning of being crucified with Christ, the old cross, and the way Christ is presented today. So all you've got to do, just give me your name and address. Uh, tell me, do you want that tract and how many copies you want? We'll order them and we'll get them to you. Okay? Now, pages 16 and 17. Here we go. We're dealing with particular directions for the battle. This is the first part. We'll do the second part, God willing, tomorrow morning. Again, this is topical. I'm telling you again, this is very hard. It is very sobering material. It's designed to drive you to the Lamb of God. Remember, there's mercy with the Lord. Particular directions for the battle, part one. You must carefully consider the symptoms which accompany your indwelling sin. Now, if you're serious that this is a life and death battle, now, this is cancer. doctor has said to you, you've got cancer of the soul. And unless you deal with it radically and fully, you're going to die. You better be convinced of that. If you are convinced of that, then you must carefully consider the symptoms which accompany your spiritual cancer or your indwelling sin. And we're going to do a clinical method. This is a spiritual checkup. I don't like checkups. I don't think you do either. But here's a spiritual checkup, and it's good for you. Okay? A. Is it, you're asking some questions about the symptoms which accompany your indwelling sin. So remember, it's a given that you're going to have indwelling sin. But please don't come to me and say, Pastor, I've got indwelling sin. Say, so what? So do I. All right? You've got to be more specific than that. What are the symptoms which accompany your indwelling sin? A. Is it a long, unchecked habit specifically condemned by the Word of God and you've got to get the whole statement in there? There are long, unchecked habits that aren't wrong habits. They may be foolish habits, 
They may not be the most useful habits, but they may not be habits specifically condemned by the Word of God. Is it a long, unchecked habit specifically condemned by the Word of God? The Scriptures speak of the works of the flesh. These are some habits specifically condemned by the Word of God. Fornication, licentiousness, idolatry. There's a good one. I'm not going to answer the question, but I'll ask it of you. What is idolatry? Can you be an idolater? Well, if you can be an idolater, you better know what it is. And if idolatry excludes you from the kingdom of heaven, you better not be one. That's one of the works of the flesh. You say, bah, fornication, licentiousness, even idolatry. <laughs> That's not me. How about hatred? Contentions. Outbursts of wrath. Those are long, unchecked habits that some of you may have that are specifically condemned by the Word of God. My friend, if you have got hatred towards someone, believer or unbeliever, and you won't let that be brought to the cross and put to death, God says, you're living in a way that's not consonant with going to heaven. Galatians 5.19 and verse 20. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you have a melanoma and you've had it for years and you don't deal with it, the text is Galatians 5.19 and verse 20. You have a melanoma and that's in your back you don't deal with it, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper, it will get to your lymph nodes. If you don't get it dealt with at that point, within a few months, you're dead. That's a long, unchecked abnormality in the spiritual realm that will kill you. And I'm telling you, you have a long, unchecked abnormality in your spiritual realm. You let that one sin dominate you. Then you've got to bring yourself to the Word of God a long, unchecked habit, specifically condemned by the Word of God. And you see what happens is your familiarity clouds your sensitivity. Now, hatred, come on, it goes on all the time. And the preacher preaches on it, takes time to really deal with that and open it up. And you say, it really isn't that bad. And say, no, the problem is you've been dull to it. But what do the Scriptures say? Second question. Is the sin frequently successful in causing you to fall? I did not say, do you fall? We fall daily in thought and word and deed. But is the sin, okay, this particular sin, is it frequently successful in causing you to fall? Beware of excuses. Oh, it was an accident. Well, I'm just lazy. Well, then go back to the lesson last time. Overall obedience. I'm just careless. What's the biblical command? Be watchful. Not be careless. Be watchful. Be sober. Have two feet on the ground. Be on the alert. You know what that is? That's military language. Military language say, you are on the top where there is a guard wall. And you are guarding your own soul. And if you become lazy and careless and you have a little accident and you're not watchful, and you're not sober, and you're not alert, the enemy will come into the fort and do a deed. And in the realm of guarding a physical fort, that would be your undoing. Ask our military men. In the spiritual realm, it's the same. My proof, the Bible uses that military language to speak in that way. And as important as troops are, don't fear that one who can destroy the body but you fear that one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Number three, do you make peace with known lusts and sins? Do you make peace with known lusts and sins? I'll give you some example in the Scriptures. John 8 and verse 33 and 34. The Pharisees had made peace with their sins, and they said, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone when Jesus has said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Not us. We've never been in bondage to anyone. They made peace 
with their sins. Jeremiah 8 and verse 11, speaking to the prophets, You have healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. I'm going to tell you what a preacher is who's not honest with his people. He is worse than a man who goes to the doctor with a terminal illness. And the doctor says, you are looking fine today. In fact, in every day, in every way, you are getting better and better. And you go home and you get worse and worse. And that doctor is sued for malpractice. But a minister who tells his people, you are the greatest thing on the face of God's earth. And Jesus went to the cross that He might sanctify your ego trip. May have the biggest, brightest smile as He stands in His crystal cathedral. He's a dammer of souls. Because people come and they have got heart cancer. And you may smile when you say it out of a heart of love, but you tell them, my friend, unless you repent, you're going to perish. And it doesn't make any difference if preachers like that have got two billion people in their churches. I don't want a church with two billion people heading for hell because of my ministry. Do you make peace with known lusts and sins? Look at Romans 6 and verses 1 and 2. Paul obviously knew what he was dealing with. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. May genoito, God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, there's the teaching. Don't make peace with known lusts and sins. Jude speaks of the creeps those who crept into silly women's homes and they turned the gospel into licentiousness. Saying, that's all right to live the way you want. Silly women. Foolish people. To apply mercy to a sin that you are not mortifying is for you to fulfill the purpose of your own flesh by using the gospel. And that is dangerous sin. For you to apply mercy to a sin that you are not mortifying by grace working to put to death is to fulfill the purpose of the flesh by using the gospel. Now, I've spoken about legalism, moralism, but I've got to give equal time. I thank God every day that I am a part of a denomination that to this point has stead, stood quite consistently by saying, where the Word of God speaks, we open our mouths. And where the Word of God doesn't speak, we keep our mouths shut. And so even in the midst of a dry period of prohibition, the New York Times had front-page articles that included references to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as the wet church. We at least got notoriety at that time because we were one of the few churches in the United States that said the Bible does not condo condemn the moderate use of alcoholic beverages, therefore we can't do it. And I thank God, and you ought to thank God, that you are part of a church that has said, where the Bible's silent, we keep our mouths shut. Otherwise, it's the OPC, Orthodox, Pharisaic church, and you don't want to be a Pharisee. Okay? Now, I'm saying that. The point is, do you make peace with known lusts and sins? Look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. I realize Peter is speaking here about freedom in Christ and the way it can be abused with respect to civil authorities, but the point in 1 Peter 2.16 is far broader than that. Peter says that we are to live, it is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free. Friends, in Christ you are God's free man and woman. That's glorious stuff. Now, the devil can hurl anything at you, and in Christ you're absolutely free. You say, devil, you strike me down, you bring me to glory earlier. Welcome, right? 
You are free men, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. And my dear man or woman, in the name of God, don't you use your legitimate liberty in Christ as a cloak to make peace with your known lusts and sins. I can drink all I want. I have liberty in Christ. I can curse up a blue streak. I've got liberty in Christ. I don't need to turn off the TV at any time. I've got liberty in Christ. You are seeking to fulfill the purpose of your own flesh with the gospel. And if Paul were with you, he'd say, God forbid that it happen. You want to know the difference between liberty and vice? If your use of alcohol, and I enjoy a good glass of wine, I'm supposed to say that. Enjoy a glass of wine. I make my own beer because I don't like to pay the tax. <laughs> See, a biblical principle even for that. <laughs> and when I relax in the evening, I enjoy smoking my pipe once in a while. But here's my test. If it is my liberty and not my vice, can I give it up for six months? That's my personal test. And I say to you, I would never for a moment take away your liberty in light of the Word of God where God does not condemn something in the Scriptures. But if it's your liberty and not your vice, you give it up for a few months. And then you see if you're enslaved to it or if it's your liberty. Right, be careful. Right, you see, again, there's a fine line. The Christian life is a narrow, narrow road. All right? Do you make peace with known lusts and sins? And my dear brothers and sisters, I am being bearing my heart to you today. We're to confess our transgressions one to another and we're to be honest with one another. So I'm just letting you know this is the real world, even where Pastor Shisko lives. Okay? Number four, do you fight against sin? Only with a fear of punishment. Do you fight against sin only with a fear of punishment? If you do, then you are a very good Romanist, but you are not a good biblical Christian. Because it is the essence of Romanism to make people be cowed into submission by a fear of punishment. But what is the order of the Gospel? Romans 2 and verse 4. Do you despise the goodness and the kindness and the forbearance of God, not knowing that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. Glorious. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Romans 2 and verse 4. And folks, gospel blessings will do more to enable you to mortify sin than all the terrors of the law will ever do. The terrors of the law aren't going to convert anybody and not going to enable you to mortify sin. They'll drive you to Christ. Boy, they'll tell you, they'll smoke you out of your hole fast and make you run to Christ. But they'll not help you to mortify sin. Let me give you an illustration. Marital unfaithfulness. You could charge your conscience men over and over again saying, I'm not despising this at all, but I'm saying this is not sufficient. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery. And do your study in it that convinces you, seventh commandment, abiding, valid commandment, which it is, you shall not commit adultery. In itself, that has no power to prevent you from picking up a hooker on the street. Because of the weakness of the flesh, the law will not enable you to mortify sin. But you think of a wife or a husband who loves you, who's faithful to you, who gives himself or herself to you, who has given all for you. Think of that love your spouse has for you and what a terrible thing it would be to ruin that by a one-night stand. And that will give you strength to mortify sin. Now, there's an, in the human realm, you see, it's, it's that goodness and that love that enables you to mortify sin. And so it is the goodness and the grace of God. How can I sin against my good God? E, are you hardened or softened 
by the knowledge of your sin? Are you hardened or softened by the knowledge of your sin? Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. You don't even need to turn there. How does God work? There's sin. Love can no longer cover a multitude of transgressions. There's a pattern of sin there. Your brother, your sister, you have sinned in the presence of your brother or your sister. Your brother or your sister comes to you and speaks to you one-on-one and says, in light of the Word of God, I believe this is wrong. I've examined my own heart. I've plucked the beam out of my own eyes. But my brother, my sister, this is wrong. And you say, beat it. And they come to you again for the ideas repeatedly. I've got to mention it to you again. Say, look, you brought up this to me once. We bug off. And then you bring some other people who come. And they labor before the Word of God, even with witnesses there to say, Joe, Harry, Sarah, whatever the name would be. This is what the Word of God says. I don't care what the Word of God says. I'm going to do it. And then finally, before the church, the matter is dealt with. And eventually, if he doesn't leave the church, being hardened or softened by the knowledge of his sin, will eventually say, perhaps, I don't even care to hear what you say, then regard them as a Gentile and a tax gatherer with the process of discipline and so forth. That's what I mean by being hardened or softened by the knowledge of your sin. If you're softened, you say, when one person comes, you know... It was very hard for me to hear what you said to me. But I know you did it in love. And I really appreciate that. Would you forgive me for sinning against you? And please tell me others that I may have offended. Let me go to them. But first, please, let's go to the Lord together and ask forgiveness. That's being softened by your sin. See, there's an inoculation principle of the Christian life. The inoculation principle of the Christian life is, interestingly, when there is sin by which you sin, if you respond properly to that sin, it will help immunize you against other sin. That's basically the principle of an inoculation. You're putting a little bit of the whatever it is in the system, a bit bit of polio or whatever, so the body builds up its defenses. You sin, someone deals with you about your sin, and you're softened by it. And you'll never look at that sin in the same way again. But if you're hardened by sin, then there's great danger. Brothers and sisters have a low tolerance level for sin and have a high allergic reaction to it. Okay? Next, F. Have you already resisted particular dealings from God against your sin? Have you already resisted particular dealings from God against your sin in God's providence you've been brought many times to realize you've sinned against the Lord and you still do it in your own Bible reading you can't read anything from Genesis to Revelation without certain things coming up like lances inside of your own heart that tell you this is a wrong area in my life and I need to get it straightened out under preaching are there certain things the preacher says periodically that just really get to you say well that's for me but you resist God dealing with you. How about exhortations your brothers or sisters are given? Perhaps even at this conference. Maybe some of you have said, I've got one of these neo-Puritans up there. You can call me whatever you want. Is this what the Scriptures say? Incidentally, be careful when you start, if you use the term Puritan pejoratively. You know who wrote the Westminster Confession? What does the word... Now you see again, you see the way the devil and our world and the flesh will all work to make us look in the other direction when we ought to look at the Word of God. It doesn't make any difference what you call it. It's what God says in His Word. Listen to it. And my dear brothers and sisters, every warning, every warning is an inescapable mercy. When I'm driving down a road, if I'm driving up these hills at a 50 degree angle, Amazing to go up it. I'm wondering what it's like to go down it at night, tomorrow night. And you've got a sign, and it says, slow down. You're a fool if you speed up, or you go over the hill. You don't say, ow, what's that sign there telling me to slow down for? You say, thank God, if I heed that, I might live this trip going down. Every warning is an inestimable mercy, especially to the unsaved. Unsaved, see, see, Again, and I don't want to ride a hobby, but this gets to me. So we're told, you know, with the unsaved people, you've got to be careful not to scare them too much. No, you need to warn them that unless they repent, they're going to perish right then and do it in a loving, gracious way. You've got to warn them. 
praise the grace whose threats alarm me and the grace that whispered peace. Hebrews 3 and verses 7 and 8. Today, as the Holy Spirit says, don't harden your heart. Today, don't harden your heart. And my dear friend, I plead with you in here, if God, as I trust He is, is dealing with your heart about that one known unmortified sin that you cherish and you coddle, don't you harden your heart. Because today is the day you're expected to deal with that. Proverbs 29.1 You want a text that will make the hair on your neck stand up. Given to the covenant people. He who hardens his neck after much reproof shall suddenly be broken without remedy. That scares you. And it's meant to do it. Hardening the neck is saying before the one who speaks to you in love, I'm going to bend. God says, your neck isn't stronger than my power. Have you already resisted particular dealings with God against your sin? Parenthetically again, that's the great blessing of a faithful church. You folks have got pastors in here. I know just about all of them. And I know well the ones that are in here. These are men that love your souls. These are men who aren't in it for the money. If they were, they wouldn't be in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Even though one of them drives a Cadillac. I've got to pick on each one in here at some point. Boy, wait till, I, wait till you guys are speaking for me at a conference. Oh man, I'm going to come with my bulletproof vest. You've got pastors who love you folks. I know, I've talked with them and I've prayed with many of them. They love your souls. You thank God for those men. You might want to go up in this conference and say, you know, I'm thankful you're willing to labor faithfully for me and others in this church. What a blessing that is. My wife and I have talked periodically about what she should do. If the Lord should take me prematurely, what church she'd go to. And I've told her, wherever you go, you go to a pastor that's going to deal honestly with your soul. You don't want to play with your soul. And I thank God you've got men that don't play with your souls. Now, don't let these admonitions keep you from the doctor. All these things that we've covered in the spiritual checkup. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my supplications. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That's where you go with all of this. Okay, so those carefully considering the symptoms which accompany your indwelling sin. Now in the second place, Roman numeral 2. You must become heartily convinced of the guilt the danger and the evil of the sin that is vexing you. This is particular direction number two. Remember number one, carefully consider the symptoms which accompany your indwelling sin. That clinical method, we covered it. Questions A, B, C, D, E, and F. Done that, go to the doctor. Roman numeral two. And you'll go to the doctor after this too. You must become heartily convinced of the guilt the danger and the evil of the sin that is vexing you. And if any particular direction other than the last is necessary, it is this. You must become heartily convinced of the guilt, the danger, and the evil of the sin that is vexing you. Romans 7 and verse 13. Romans 7 and verse 13. Paul is speaking of the law, has then, he says, what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, if you're upset with a preacher who's obsessed with sin, then you're upset with Paul. Paul says, now I'm going to isolate this one thing that gives me all of these problems, the law, no, 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 but sin, that it might be manifest as sin, that it might show itself in all of its ugliness as a wicked witch, that it might appear sin was producing death in me. It was showing me that I'm under the wrath of God through what is good, through the law, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. That it might show itself to be sinful above and beyond measure. I'll make you feel it. Go to the dentist. Dentist says, you have got a cavity, and it's a bad one. That's bad enough. He says, now, I am going to take the drill. 
and you look at the drill and this is arch enemy number one. The enemy is the cavity. The dentist says, now, I am going to apply the drill to your tooth and I'm even going to describe everything that's happening while this thing is whizzing and no anesthetic for you. And he takes that good drill like the law and applies it to your bad cavity like sin and he drills it in and it hits the nerve. And above and beyond measure you realize what that infection was. Understand? That is Paul contextualized 101. I can get a job with a mission board in contextualization. One man said no one ever hated or dreaded sin too much. The law does what the anti-Nazi propaganda films did during World War II. They made you hate Nazism. That's what the law does. It makes you hate sin. That's why we love the law. Now, that's the lesson. You must become heartily convinced of the guilt, the danger, and the evil of the sin that is vexing you. That's the purpose of the law, but let's break it down, A, B, and C. A, you must become heartily convinced of the guilt of your sins. You must become heartily convinced of the guilt of your sins because sin will, among other things, anesthetize your heart regarding its own guilt even as a cavity has a way to dull your tooth to what's really there. Sin will, among other things, cloud your heart regarding its guilt. Proverbs 7 and verse 21. Parents, when you teach your children about the dangers of sexual unfaithfulness, Proverbs 7, don't shy away from it and say, I'm not going to read it to you until you're 25 years old, then it's too late. Teach your children Proverbs chapter 7. I won't read it all, but you know it's the story of the enticing woman who goes after the man. And watch what she does. Proverbs 7 and verse 21. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. And immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare he did not know it would cost its life sin clouded his heart fair speech the wonderful perfume flattering lips and before he knows it he yields and he goes verse 14 the woman has said I have peace offerings with me today I've paid my vows I'm a very religious person she comes cloaked and guys is a very religious person Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, having their understanding darkened by the hardness of their hearts, being past feeling, have given themselves over to licentiousness. Heart clouded regarding sin. You know what that's all about? And there again is where the world will begin to anesthetize you. Being, you don't feel that private vengeance is wrong. Your understanding is blurred over whether it's right or wrong to kill a child in the womb. And your heart is hardened because you don't do anything with what you receive and you don't feel like you need to do anything when the preacher says you've got to repent of that sin. Have given themselves over to licentiousness. And Paul says, I say that you should not walk in this way as the Gentiles did. In the regenerate, they will go literally all the way, but in the regenerate, they can very easily go partly like an elder in my former presbytery who, about 20 years, began to take just a little bit of money from the bank for which he worked until on the front page of the paper in the town in which he lived was the fact that he'd embezzled three quarters of a million dollars. His conscience of a Christian, an elder in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, had been dulled to the fact that he was sinning against his God. And my friends, sin will cloud your heart and my heart in the same way. The guilt of sin, this is the second part under this, not only will sin among other things cloud your heart, but remember that the guilt of sin in professed Christians is far worse than it is in unbelievers. 
That's why it is so dangerous when people say, oh, we have all this emphasis on sin in the Christian church today. I mean, that's just old Puritan stuff. My friend, the Puritans were dealing with a nation of people who were professed Christians. And they had grasped the fact that for a professed Christian to sin against the grace of God was worse than a pagan who sins. My proof? Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. For Hebrews 10 and verse 26. For if we professed believers wanting to go back to an Old Testament economy, but he doesn't say if we sin only by wanting to go back to an Old Testament economy. And I've heard this. People say, well, you can't apply this to any sin. This is speaking to people who want to go back to the Old Testament economy. That may have applied in AD 68. That doesn't apply today. Wait a minute. He doesn't say if we sin by wanting to go back to the Old Testament economy. He simply says if we sin. If we sin willfully. After we have received the knowledge of the truth. Now, he's not saying we commit us sin. We have a pattern of sin. Exactly what we're dealing with. Indwelling sin and the person will not put it to death. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Where else are you going to go? but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, but that does not apply in the New Covenant, which is all grace and no law, right? Even the NIV doesn't say that. Verse 29, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. These are people in the covenant externally and God has come to them in His grace and has ministered to them as He ministers to you week in and week out. The Spirit of God comes and works in the assembly. He comes and works in your home. He comes and works through your Bible study. You learn of Christ. You hear of Christ. You're called to go to Christ. The free offer of the Gospel in Christ. And you thumb your nose at it. And say, I'm going to do what I want. You've insulted the Spirit of grace. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to insult any person of the deity. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And my friend, it is. It is a fearful thing for an Orthodox Presbyterian who knows the truth in the head but says, I'm going to do what I want with my body and my mind to fall into the hand of the living God. To have success in mortification, then, my dear brothers and sisters, you must be heartily convicted of sin's guilt and don't you let society rub to smoothness your view of guilt unfaithfulness in marriage is guilt killing a child in the womb is guilt hatred of someone else is guilt even when it's the hatred of road rage and it's not a syndrome it's sin now you see again how the world the world will take that glove of your own of your own sensitivities and kind of massage your temple a little bit so you say it isn't all that bad. You go to the Word of God and God says, yeah, it's bad enough. I tell you, you break the law at one point. It's like breaking a mirror. It's busted. You've broken the whole thing. That's why we sing in the old and the new Trinity hymnal. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly. Here it's guilt may estimate. That's part of the meaning of the cross. You don't think sin is so bad, then why did God the Father have His own Son come to bear hell for each one of them? That's practical, limited atonement. Even my little old sins are sufficient to bear hell. So it took a great God-man and a cursed cross so I could go to heaven. People who want to neuter the value of sin, they neuter the cross. That's why Christ is so precious to the believer. Blessed cross where grace is found. 
Number two, you must be or be, you must become heartily convinced of the danger of your sins. And by this I mean long term as well as short term, but particularly long term. You must become heartily convinced of the danger of your sins. What is the danger of your sins? Number one, the danger of unmortified sin, of you becoming progressively hardened to sin. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. And I want you to notice again the fineness of the Greek language used here. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. Beware, brethren, and the way this is done so that there is a negative form after the beware indicates, according to Greek scholars, which I'm not, but I've read those that have commented on this, this is a present reality. I even put the note in my Bible. It is a present reality of a truth that is impending and in view. Beware, brethren. I write this as one who says this is a danger right now. Beware, brethren. Not beware unconverted people, but beware professed believers, lest there be in any of you that is in any one of you. Don't you say that in preaching you can't be that discriminating? I'm only dealing with the congregation as a group. The writer says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in, and here's the fineness of the expression, in departing from or apostatizing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened through, and here's where the term comes in, lest any of you permit yourself to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let me go over that again. Beware, brethren. This is a real reality that I'm facing here, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief. That goes back to the foundation, previous hour, in apostatizing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. Remind one another while it is called today. Lest, and that's incidentally why you follow Matthew 18, 15. Don't say I can wait. If you can't cover it, you confront it. Lest any of you, lest any one of you, be hardened or permit yourself to become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, do you really believe what I'm saying? If you do, you realize that in any church, because these things are written for our instruction for the church of all ages, in any church, this side of glory, until Christ comes, there's the danger of people with evil hearts of unbelief who, if they're not exhorted and don't listen, may permit themselves to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. How does that come? People will disregard admonition. They will disregard exhortation. They will disregard encouragement. And the language that is used here for exhortation can mean any of those things. Exhort doesn't just mean, my brother, my sister, you've got to stop doing that. God says don't do it. It might be something like this, my brother, my sister, I know you are struggling with a sin. You told me, and I want you to know I struggle with it too. But let me encourage you. We're in this thing together. Let me help you. That word is used to describe the work of the Spirit as a paraclete to encourage and exhort and admonish. But this case is to disregard admonition, exhortation, and encouragement. Then a person will not use the means of grace as what? I mean, come on, who wants to have their cavity drilled without anesthetic? So they won't use the means of grace. And then what do they do? They sin against light. They got the light there. Grace is part of them. The light's been given to them, but they're going to sin against that grace. And they try to avoid it. And then they harden themselves. And you get spiritual cholesterol and the spiritual arteries, and eventually you get a heart attack. There's a fall. And then you've got to ask the question, is that a believer with remaining indwelling sin, or is that an unbeliever? Minister to them. That's one of the differences of the many with our Baptist friends. They say, oh, well, they sinned. They're not converted anyway. We shouldn't have baptized. We say, no, no, no. They're a professed believer, right? Yes, baptized. Well, go to them with the Word of God. Well, that's hard to do. God says to do it. You believe the Bible? My Baptist friends, you tell us you believe the Bible. Go to them and speak to them. Now, if they say, when the course of action followed, I'm not going to listen, then declare them a Gentile and a tax gatherer. But they might say, you know, I've never had anybody point that out to me. Thank you for doing that. And don't say, well, they won't listen anyway. That would be like me preaching and saying, <laughs> going out in New York and preaching the gospel. They're a bunch of dead corpses. They're not going to listen anyway. It's by the preaching of the Word of God people are converted. By your exhortation, 
people may be changed. That's the reason for the sequence of Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. But there's a progressive hardening. That's why you must become heartily convinced of the danger of your sins. But there's more to it. Then there may be a difficult chastening. Psalm 89 and verses 30 to 33. Psalm 89 and verses 30 to 33. If his sons forsake my law. Now this is not speaking of Solomon or of Christ in the first place. It doesn't say if his son. It is speaking in the context of a seed. His seed, also the seed of David and even the professed seed of Christ. His seed also I will make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. Yes, that does refer to Solomon and to Christ. But if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take away from him. What? That's the elect seed. I will not take it away. And the evidence is there is repentance, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. But we deal with those who are at least externally in covenant with God. Here is a difficult chastening as there was with David. You say, oh, well, David sinned against Bathsheba. The Lord forgave him. You know what his life was like afterwards? You want your life to be like that? Difficult chastening is not necessarily because of a pattern of sin in a believer. And I want to emphasize that. I've learned through hard pastoral experience, you never, ever, when people are going through difficulty, say, this is chastening because of your sin. Job is a good proof that all chastening is not due to sin. But a pattern of sin in a professed Christian will always bring chastening. Hebrews 12 and verses 5 through 11 speaks of the chastening the Father gives to His children. Difficult chastening. You must become heartily convinced of the danger of your sins because of progressive hardening, of difficult chastening. But third place under this, because of the loss of peace and strength that may come. Oh, Westminster Confession section on assurance deals with this well. You can read that at some point. But what happens when there's a loss of peace and strength? God will hide His face at the very instant of sin. Psalm 77, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will He be favorable no more? Has His mercy clean gone forever? Have His promises failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His tender mercies? And as I said in Westminster Church Sunday morning, it is a terrible thing when you deal with people who believe they are Esau's. People who believe that for a momentary giving over of their own lust and an inability to break the bondage as a result, they're like Esau who for a morsel sold his birthright. And God in His own chastening will do that even to His professed children. And it's a horrible thing to witness. The loss of peace and strength and not infrequently with those who don't heed admonition Remaining days of fear and dread. How could I really be a Christian if I still deal with this? The joy of the Lord gone. I can't say this without thinking of one man in the congregation I pastor who many years ago had to confess to a string of iniquity. He is a godly, fine man. But that man walks with a limp. He believes his spiritual guts have been taken out. And no matter how lovingly and graciously and pastorally and faithfully we seek to encourage him, his sin is ever before him. He is like Jacob who walks with a limp or like a Samson whose eyes are bucked out. And Samson's in glory, thank God. But Samson had his eyes plucked out in the way. And good redemptive history says... God will do the same thing in the children that He loves. Because it's far better that an eye be plucked out or a hand cut off than that the eyes and the hands be in hell. You know, what happens when you have a serious illness or when people do drugs? You have a serious illness and you're debilitated. You do drugs and you're going to warp your mind. And spiritually, same thing. 
Is a person no less a human when they're sick? No, they're still human. Are they less human when they've got problems in the head because they're still human? A person can still be a Christian. It's a whole lot better if you don't have those scars. I wish I could had more time to illustrate. You can illustrate yourself. I look back. I, God converted me graciously. Believe me, and this ain't hyperbole. If God hadn't converted me in February when I was 18 years of age, I would be six feet under the ground right now, and I'd be in hell. And while I thank God for His grace that reached down that morning at that radio station, a secular station where I was working, I listened to an Arminian preacher. I used to think a guy was a fruitcake. An effectual calling came to Bill Shisko, middle of February, 1970, and converted me. I thank God for that. But I wish I didn't have about six years of a sordid life before that with images and things I had to deal with for years and years. I wish I didn't have those scars. And I pray to God you don't have them either. Less a Christian? I'm not less a Christian. But I got scars that I don't like. Loss of peace and strength. And then, because you must become heartily convinced of the danger of your sins because of eternal destruction. God delivers people, His own people, from continuing in sin. So there is no everlasting destruction. Matthew one twenty one. He will save His people from their sins. But God delivers none from destruction who continue in sin. 1 John 5 and verse 18. Whoever is born of God does not sin. And I tell you in the name of God, if God has changed your heart, having a life of ongoing sin is utterly inconsistent with the work of grace in your life. Those who continue in sin must be warned of destruction. Hebrews 3 and verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief. Matthew or Hebrews 10 and verse 38, The just shall live by faith, but if your soul draws back, I have no delight in you. And Matthew 7 and verses 21 to 23. Matthew 7 and verses 21 to 23. Ah, Jesus speaking to His disciples, is He not? Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the multitudes, He went up on a mountain, and when He was seated, His disciples came to Him. Then He opened His mouth and taught his disciples saying blessed are blessed are verse 21 of Matthew 7 not everyone who says to me lord lord even if they've memorized Turretin and Hodge and Calvin and Warfield and Murray many will say to me in that day lord lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you Apart from me, you who professed Lord, Lord. And notice it isn't Savior, Savior. Lord, Lord. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And my dear friend, whether I've gotten your name or not, if you come to a point in your life that you decide you want to live in lawlessness, whether or not you want to keep a nominal connection to the church, I pray to God He wake you up in the middle of the night and pierce your conscience in the middle of the day. That if you continue to live like that, the moment you stand before God in judgment, He will say, Depart from you, you who practice lawlessness. And I say that because I love you too much not to say it. And I can say it because Jesus did. Success and mortification begins with becoming deeply convinced of the danger of your sins. God in the Scriptures is like David to Nathan. After Nathan gives a story, David says to Nathan, that man's going to die. And I say to you, you live in abiding sin. You're going to die. You're going to die. See, you must become heartily convinced of the evil of your sins danger of your sins short term evil of your sins or danger of your sins long term evil of your sins on the short term what happens when you sin short term one the spirit is grieved owen puts it this way among those who walk with god among those who walk with god 
There's no greater motive and incentive unto universal holiness and the preserving of their hearts and spirits in all purity and cleanness than this, than the blessed Spirit who's undertaken to dwell in them as temples of God and to preserve the meat for Him who so dwells in them is continually considering what they give their entertainment in their hearts unto and rejoices when His temple is kept undefiled. Let me tell you what it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. You come home and there's your husband and there's your wife necking with another lover in your living room. And that's what grieving the Spirit is. The Holy Spirit who's given to separate you from your sin and you coddle your sin and you love your sin and you kiss your sin and you fondle your sin. And the Holy Spirit is your spouse who's right there. And yet He is grieved. In the force, folks, He's a person. Don't grieve. Don't quench the Spirit. Wounding the new creature in Christ. Matthew 5 and verse 29. Whatever causes you to sin, cut it off. Not literally. But whatever it takes so you don't wound yourself. Get rid of it. You know, parents, are you so concerned to make sure you cover up the electrical outlets and make sure the children can't pull the coffee pot down and burn themselves with it? You do the same thing spiritually. Or even wounding others. Wounding others. Matthew 18 and verses 5 through 9. Jesus says, Woe to the world because of offenses. My big picture. Woe to the world because of offenses. Offenses must come. But woe to the one on whom the offenses from whom the offenses come. A drunken man professing Christ, and I've heard of loads of them. And the wife says, if that's Christianity, I don't want a bit to do with it. And you expect the children are going to want to follow that Christ? A woman who complains constantly about what she doesn't have and how so other, many other people are so wonderful. Woe to that one by whom offenses come. Parents who in anger are like devils to their own children. That pattern of sin, do you see what that does in the way it wounds them? Or for all, the tongue that does a flaming fire, scorching anything in its past, let alone adultery and what it does. That's the evil of your sins, folks. Short term, the evil of your sins. One thing. And it can ruin not only yourself, but many others. may not damn you, but wound you. And it will grieve the Spirit. And it will genuinely hurt others. And it will take away your usefulness. Yes, David committed adultery. But he was never the same afterwards. That's why the text, that's the theme for this passage, for this conference says, If you, by the Spirit, put to death, the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. You'll enjoy abundant life. I love the fact that by God's grace, I'll be able to go home and say, Margaret, all the children, I've got new brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean that. I've learned something of that promise that the Lord says He'll give you in this life. Mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, lands, persecutions, in the age to come, everlasting life. I love to be able to go and say that and say, Margaret, we've got brothers and sisters too. We've always said, you can stay at our home and you come and they mean it. We might go up there ourselves. Folks, that's living. That's great stuff. I miss my family. I sure do. But I'm so thankful. That's life for me. If I had sinned with my own body here, with some female or male, and I had to go home and confess that to my wife and children, that doesn't mean I'm going to hell but it means my life at that point has had paint thrown all over it. And that ain't living. Not living. That's what the text means when it says, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you will live. And I have, as you can gather, a deep, deep, deep pastoral concern for this, as any pastor in this room does. We've seen too many people, not that they're going to hell, but they ain't going to heaven very well because they burn themselves with their own sin. And sin isn't worth it. Finally, you must become heartily convinced of the guilt, the danger, and the evil of the sin that is vexing you. 
I repeat what I just said to reinforce it. But to cement the point, if it's not made yet, I want to read you something from Pilgrim's Progress. Christian, not yet at the cross, he's in Interpreter's House, and he's learning some lessons about what's to come, so he'll count the cost. Christian is taken by the hand, and he's led by Interpreter into a very dark room where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. And then Christian said, What does this mean? At which the Interpreter bid him talk with the man. And Christian said to the man, Who are you? The man answered, I'm not what I once was. I'm not what I once was. Well, Christian says, what were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor of religion, both in my own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city. I had then even joy at the thoughts that I would go there. Christian says, well, but what are you now? I am now a man of despair. And I am shut up in this, this iron cage, and I cannot get out. I cannot get out. Christian says, but how did you come to this condition? I left off watching and being sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the Word and the goodness of God. I've grieved the Spirit and He's gone. I tempted the devil and He's come to me. I've provoked God to anger and He's left me. I've so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. And then said Christian to the interpreter, but, but is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. And then said Christian, is there no hope? But you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? No, none at all. Why? The Son of the Blessed is very merciful. But I've crucified him to myself afresh. I've despised his person. I've despised his righteousness. I've counted his blood an unholy thing. I've done despite to the Spirit of grace. And therefore I've shut myself out of all the promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour me as an adversary. Well, what did you bring upon yourself? What made you come to this condition? The lusts, the pleasures, and the profits of this world in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bites me and gnaws me like a burning worm. But you cannot now repent and turn? God has denied me repentance. His Word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, Himself, He has shut me up in this iron cage. Nor can all the men in the world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity! How shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? And then said the interpreter to Christian, let this man's misery be remembered by you and be an everlasting caution to you. And if you don't believe this, you take out your Bibles and you read Hebrews. That's where it comes from. And if you don't think that really can apply to a professed believer, you come prove to me Hebrews isn't in the canon of Holy Scripture. A number of years ago, our singles in New York had a ministry on Saturday evenings, a coffee house down just a bit north of the Bowery in a corner of Greenwich Village in the Bowery in the city. And before we would go, I didn't go every week, but some weeks went, wonderful way to prepare to preach on the Lord's Day. Remember how McShane used to go to plague victims on Saturday. People were dying. They may not live till the next morning. That's how he prepared to preach the next day. And the man that led the group, who had a wonderful compassion for the law, said, Pastor, I want to take you to a welfare hotel. I said, what's a welfare hotel? He said, you'll find out. In the Bowery, there's several of them. This was called something like the Sunshine House. We went up in this stinking, squalid, Spartan building, these steel steps going up, few little light bulbs with about 40 watts up there. And people, these were the people whose minds had been fried by drugs and alcohol. And they'd look at you with these little glassy eyes. And they'd sort of hear what you'd say, but they couldn't respond to it. They weren't bad enough to be in a hospital, but they weren't good enough to be let out in the street. But I talked to one after another after another of them who said stuff like, Yeah, I was an altar boy in a church. I sang in the choir. I was in a Bible study. And they were in an iron cage. As my dear friend, you and I will be if we don't take seriously the guilt 
and the danger and the evil of sin. And I promise you again, if you're not convinced yet, I'll stay up as late as you want to show you from hundreds of other texts in the Scriptures that the soul that sins is going to die. Number three, one minute and we're done. Long for deliverance from the power of your sin. Romans 7 and verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? At 11.57 on this June 20th or whatever day it is of the year 2000, I hope that you say with me, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then at verse 24.5, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Protestants would put in it, Sola, Jesus alone. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And I can say that all of the groanings of this life precede the hallelujahs of heaven. Is all this stuff humbling? You bet. But God says heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool and to this one I will look. To him who is poor, who is meek and humble and contrite, that is slain and spirit and trembles at my word, who is anxiously careful for my word. My dear friends, I love to tell you after opening up your heart, you come to the Lord Jesus. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Robert Murray McShane that I mentioned, great dictum for every one look at your sin. And God knows you've got hundreds of them here. Ten looks at Christ. And when you look at Jesus as He's made known in Holy Scripture, that's why you don't use pictures. Pictures can't blot out your sin. But the Word of God declares forgiveness. When you look at this glorious Jesus whose character and grace are writ large over 66 books of the Bible, you don't need your Trinity hymnal to sing after that. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. And how does it go next? Grace that is greater than all my sin. Hallelujah. Let's stand and let's pray. Oh Lord God, once again we ask that these things would not be taken away from us. We would enjoy our meal. We would eat and drink to Your glory. We would not be somber. We would not be those who are unthankful with joy for all of Your benefits. But we are to rejoice with trembling. And we ask our God that we would have been humbled before You, but realize that the very fact that we hear this in this context is to know that we hear it in a context of grace. Oh God, don't let us harden our hearts to this grace. May we now imagine the Lord Jesus, who by His own Word tells us, with outstretched arms He bids us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door,